My man, thank you. <laughs> Whew, like TBN, I'm sweating. All right. <clears throat> Good morning. I'm glad you guys are with us today. Um, Good night. It has been a week, has it not? Um, God is, as Pastor Greg said, is certainly gracious. Um, he uh, spared everyone in his church of major damage. The fact that we are here today, um, when everything else around here looks like it does, is just incredible. Um, we were fishing earlier this week for an alternate location to meet on Sunday, um, and uh, were denied, <laughs> which was encouraging. Um, but uh, I think because God had this place for us still. Um, and so that's an incredible, incredible blessing. Um, yeah, with that, along with other things, um, it's been it's been a week for Dayton. Uh, it's been a week for this church, uh, for your pastors. Um, I pray that you would remember us um, in your prayers, um, even in and amidst of what else is going on around the church um, and in the city. There um, is a good bit that has been going on, and I think that we should not be surprised for two reasons, well, three really. Uh, one, the scriptures tell us that, which leads me into two. We've been talking about suffering for weeks. Um, we, we should not enter the scriptures um, and expect them to just float over us. Um, the things that God leads us to study, he calls us to. Um, and there has been suffering on our plate for months as we've been in First Peter, um, and will continue to be. Um, and that's not a bad thing, as we've talked about. It, it leads to grace. Um, and then I would say number three, arguably, um, because of what God's doing here with this church. Um, it has been Satan's pattern in the past. Anytime a major movement of God is happening in renovation, let alone in the church uh, universal in history, um, that the accuser enters the playing field even more so. And that has certainly been the case. So um, be encouraged. Uh, those are all marks of God's faithfulness. Um, and things that we're called to. So, um, with that, I want to call us to our passage today in First Peter chapter 3. We're beginning a new series today. The idea of being stewards of God's grace, and particularly what it looks like uh, to suffer for righteousness' sake. We've come out of a time talking about submission and what it looks like that Peter's calling us to as a church, um, calling us to as families, calling us to as employees, and we're seeing now the opportunity to, to go somewhere with all of that submission. What does that submission lead to? What is that life meant to be? And what does God have in store for us? And I think particularly today we have a wonderful opportunity uh, in setting up our passage uh, for today with, with welcoming Michael into membership. If, with our covenant renewal services, we have that, that opportunity. We read it together that you'll consider uh, your covenant membership on a yearly basis. Ideally, that happens more frequently as we bring people in. We get to consider it more. But as um, God ordained today, our passage fits right into what it looks like uh, to do some reflection on covenant renewal and what it is particularly that we have covenanted together to do. So for those of you that are still working on membership or considering it and coming in to join us, this really is a sermon around uh, the expectations, as it were, in many cases of what it means to be a member here. But not just here, uh, it is clearly what God has called all believers to. And so, 
I want to, to say that when it comes to a covenant membership, I have been just really encouraged um, by our members. Um, it, it has been a, a rough couple of weeks, even before uh, Memorial Day's activities. Um, but I have been just really encouraged by the brothers and sisters among you, people in next to you. You guys have been really encouraging to Matt, to myself, to Greg, because of just simply living faithfully, living faithfully in covenant. And I, and I believe that God has and is rewarding that faithfulness, even as we're going to see today in our passage. But as a recipient of that grace personally, I, I just want to say thank you those of you that are living faithfully, whatever that looks like in whatever situation you know I might be referring to, um, God is using you in each and every one of your different ways. Be faithful. I know and, and want to acknowledge that I have a kind of a unique perspective as one of your shepherds to a lot of these behind-the-scenes activities, and indeed that does provide me a fuller picture, but I want to encourage you in something. There are other things that you can do <laughs> to be able to grab some of that perspective. The perspective that I have is not simply afforded to me as a shepherd. I think one of the other reasons that I'm able to see this is simply that I'm among you. I, I'm spending my time with you or around you or among you or concerned about you and talking as I lean into my other co-laborers that might be more of a primary care for you. I, I still get to be among you by their reports. But this is something that you can do as well. You don't have to be a shepherd to be among each other, right? So let me encourage you with some, some good action steps just right out the gate. Spend time with each other. Spend time with each other. I mean, family is amazing. I love my family. I love my extended family. But this is my family too. You guys are my folks, as it were. That was for the Kentucky folk. Um, <laughs> number two, be a covenant keeper. Be a covenant keeper. And that's what we're going to spend the most of our time on this morning. And so as we think about our covenant, the items that we read together just a moment ago, confess together, promise together, we have to ask that question out the gate. How are you doing at that? How are you doing at that? Now, it sounds a little legalistic. It sounds a little check the boxes. It's, is it a performance check? Well, yes, in some regards it is. It is a performance check. But there's some, some good things that we're getting by that. It's not a performance for self-righteousness. It's not a performance to, to prove yourself. It's not a performance to be comfortable. It's not a performance to be in control of what your membership or other people's membership looks like. It's a performance check to say, yes, I am keeping covenant because God is a covenant keeper. And when we cannot keep covenant, he does on our behalf. And he calls us to walk with him in that. And so I think some important diagnostic questions for us as we look at this morning, just a few moments ago reading through that, was it exciting for you? Is it exciting to you to bring someone in to the body? Is it meaningful? I, I think another good question to ask would be, are you looking for ways to be better? And by better, I, we mean holy, right? More holy, as we've talked about, particularly in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But then I think a really good diagnostic question in the next two ones. Are you making plans for better care? Are you making plans to care for others better? In light of what we read, in light of the things that you have promised, are you doing that and are you making plans to do it better? And I would say particularly for you husbands, as we talked about last week, are you taking that covenant today and saying, yes, this is what my family is going to be about? Are you taking that and establishing course for your family. Because that's what you've covenanted to. 
in a very similar way to what you covenanted in marriage. Now, this one can be transferred. I would not encourage you to do that with your marriage. Um, that one can't be transferred. Uh, but it's still a covenant. As far as God's concerned, it's still binding. And so, is this something that you are making your family about? Is it establishing direction for your family? Because for all of us, this is a course correction opportunity. As is any time, really, the scriptures are open. But as a local church, with this new addition, how will the body receive and care for this member that was brought in? What does that look like? And so, what's helpful about this passage today particularly is that Peter begins to shift the gears kind of into, into top gear, and he brings us all into the moment. It's been about employees, it's been about masters, it's been about husbands and wives, but now he's bringing us all into the moment. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The first thing I want you to see today is that we are all called to one body. We are all called to one body. I feel like I have a Superman curl going on and I hate Superman. Killing me the long hair thing. All right. We are all called to one body. All of you, not just employees, masters, husbands, wives, all of you, all of us. We have been called together. And I think that this is an important distinction, particularly when we're talking about being together, the togetherness of the church. Because in our culture, where value is almost exclusively found on these different intersectionalities, Peter ends by issuing our call together. In our culture, we have different intersections depending on what you are based on race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation, based on sports. I mean, we have intersectionalities all over the place. And, and there's a large part of me that wants to just deny it, but that's, that's not actually the case. And the Bible does have categories for these intersections. In fact, we've spent the past couple of weeks talking about some of those particular lines as they intersect with another Wives, how do you live with a husband? How do you live with an unbelieving husband? Husbands, how do you live with that wife? And so we have these intersection points. But in our culture, our culture gives us value depending on how many of these we have and particularly how unique we are in those. That's a longer conversation that I don't want to get into now. But when we talk about it to our culture and they're all called to something, it's that something that gives them value. It's those different intersections that give them value. Now, we certainly do see these different roles, these different intersections, but our value doesn't come from them. Our value does not come from them. Our value comes by being the body, the one body, particularly that body that was purchased with the blood of Jesus in Acts 20, 28. Our value comes from being covered in the blood of Jesus. That's an entirely different starting point, and that's an entirely different thing altogether that you're called to. And so what do we do, though, with all these differences, these different titles, these different intersections? There's five different things that Peter gives us, but chief among them is to have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. So in case you're ever struggling with application here or hard-pressed for something hard to do, Peter generously shares five things for us to be about. Just list them off. He says, do this, have this, be this. And so first, I want you to see that he says, first, all of you have 
unity of mind. That is, particularly having a common mindset, not necessarily all the same tastes or gifts or habits, but definitely the same thoughts and assessments on the essentials of life. On the essentials of life, God, salvation, and virtue. The term that we see with unity of spirit really just means this sharing the same thoughts and attitudes, thinking, I like this word most, harmoniously. This is often too much uh, a goal that is too frequently, infrequently attained by the Christian church. You see, when we think about these ideas of the essentials of life, God, salvation, and virtue, how much are you on the same page with those that are sitting next to you? It's important first in a marriage, but then go down the row. So as we think about being in unity of mind together, we share the same thoughts and assessments of the essentials of life, God, salvation, and virtue. These things that supersede any other intersectionality that we might claim. So I think harmoniously is, is the most helpful term. It allows for us to have these different intersections and still be united. When we think about harmony in music, particularly, now I can't be a part of this one, because when I sing a note, somehow it's like two notes. Um, Jess has one note, right? And then Greg has another note, right? And then Matt has a, a third note, if they all were to sing together. Different notes or intersections, harmony, one chord, one sound. They ring together. And so they may have different assessments on a lot of different things, right? But when it comes to this one thing in music, they're in the same key. They have the same understanding of time signature, of key, and they sing within that, and it's harmonious together. And so when we think about that with our church, it seems easy on the God and salvation aspect, particularly in this at least local body, maybe not as you step out inside these walls, but it often feels that virtue is where the church loses steam, at least their assessment of what virtue is and at least which ones should be most important. And so I want to caution us to be aware of that going forward, particularly as we seek to strike harmony with an entirely different body as we become a new body together. In music, particularly, if we're in the same key, we can play together. That's called usually jazz we can jam, right? You can take these instrumentalists and throw them in and with that same key and maybe even some weird off-key stuff, it still makes beautiful music together. But if we come in and not appreciate what is there, particularly in virtue, then we're not going to find harmony. We're going to find the danger of being double-minded. And James tells us that when we are double-minded, particularly as one body, but definitely in and of ourselves, we are unstable in all our ways. There is no future for refuge church, the church combined, if we cannot seek harmony together. And we're going to find those on God, salvation, and virtue. And so when we talk about being of one mind, it means having a common understanding of the truth. But it's more than that. It's more than that. When the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it's denied. That was one of my experiences this past week. Someone trying to affirm the truth of God but in arrogance, and it falls apart. They actually end up denying the truth of Christ. You see, the like-mindedness that Peter requires manifests the mind and love of Christ. I'd like to think that he's maybe pulling from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the mind that we're called to be unified around is not simply agreeance in the thoughts and on the importance of the essentials of God, salvation, and virtue, but it is the fact that the very mind we have together is that of Christ Jesus. You see that connection? It's not just the topics, it's the mind itself. And that's what's important about the church being united under the head of Jesus Christ. We have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so it is precisely willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake that undercuts the misunderstandings and hostilities that can divide the Christian community. That willingness to submit yourself to others, whether it's other members and certainly to elders, is where you see this, this, this overflow of love of Christ. And so when we think about the merging of these two bodies together, looking for a harmony, do you have a willingness to submit yourself to others for Christ's sake? Will you be able to do that in August and then in September? If you can't do it here, you're probably not going to be able to do it there. And what this also shows us too is that if you can't do it here, you're probably not doing it here. Our horizontal always reflects our vertical relationship with Jesus. We live out submission to Christ by living out submission to others, not just leaders, but to each other. So will you be able to submit yourself to others for Christ's sake, to be of like mind and unity of mind? Next, he says, all of you have sympathy or be sympathetic. Now, this one, I think, needs to be addressed pretty heavily. And that the idea of sympathy that we're talking about is feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. Now, people who have true sympathy generally don't say, I know how you feel, because since they know how you feel, they also know how unhelpful it is to hear someone say, I know how you feel. Right? <laughs> I, I, I like... John Piper's definition of this. He says, true sympathy is a fairly quiet, time-intensive, and presence-intensive way of being. That is, that's a challenging definition. It's a challenging definition. And for me, who likes to think that I'm relatively you know, quick uh, to what is going on and being an introvert, I don't like having to spend extra time if I don't think it's necessary. And being around people often is draining to me, and it's presence intensive. And so for me, particularly as a pastor, those are things that I have to live in the spirit, clearly, to do. To be patient. The quiet part I'm pretty good with. But the presence intensive way, being there, is all wrapped up in this idea of sympathy. And I can only do that by the Spirit. But, of course, we see in Hebrews that the author of Hebrews describes Christ as the high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so if I'm going to live out this sympathy myself as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a church member among you, I have to do it in the Spirit, the same Spirit that was with Christ and His living out. And so Peter just told us in verse three, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7, about this idea of a sympathetic understanding that husbands have to show to their wives. And so if we're going to live this out in the Spirit, we need to know a little bit more about what it means. Because for me, particularly, 
the idea of sympathy, and then later that we're going to talk about compassion, were things that were a little bit far removed from me at least a few years ago. Something that I had to specifically pray for and look for opportunities to, to walk in faithfulness with, and sympathy and in compassion, which we'll talk about in a moment. But to, to, to get a better understanding, first of all, we, we need to define a little bit more about what this looks like. It's already a pretty heavy definition that he gave us. But when we talk about sympathy, we're saying readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, right? In, in the vivid image of the body of Christ, Paul reminds us of the sympathy that exists among bodily parts. In other words, when one member suffers, the other members suffer with it. It's that pain that when one member is hurting, all hurt. That is what it should be in the body when we talk about sympathy. Now, in a way, we see that in this city this past week, and even before that, with some of the other events that were going on, but particularly that when one place hurts, many hurt. I think as a common grace of God, but it should be the absolute always reality of the church. That when you are brought into membership, that when one hurts, all hurt. And so this love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, but catch this, enters into the other's needs and concerns. That, that is covenant care. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to proclaim to each other in covenant membership and covenant renewal. Entering into others' needs and concerns. Now, when we talk about being in, united in mind on God and salvation, those are easy. Virtue. Can you enter into others' needs and concerns? What if they're not your needs? What if you don't share the same concerns? Can you still be sympathetic? You know, tornadoes do indeed make it a lot easier. A crisis brings people together. But our city has been in crisis before the winds came. Souls are in crisis. They have been. They will be. Our call is to them as the church. But our first call is to each other as the church. We are the church on mission we can't be on mission unless we're the church. It's something we've been talking about for the past two years. And so the question today, today, before you go out and be the church, is how are you entering into each other's needs and concerns in this body? Was that on your mind this morning? Will it be when we're tearing down and we get into the busyness of life? Because if we can't do it here, we're not going to do it out there. And if we do it out there without doing it here, we're not reflecting the right message. There's a distinct difference between Christian care and witness and general humanitarian care. We are the church on mission. We're not you on mission. Number three, next, all of you have brotherly love. Be brotherly. That is, don't view each other as strangers or as mere acquaintances or as distant relatives. We should view each other as close family. Now, family can have some pretty serious squabbles and exchange some very harsh words, but only in the rarest cases does the family break up over it. But even more so than our pragmatic, earthly view of family, like these other graces that we're talking about, brotherly love is specifically Christian. 
It is specifically Christian. It's not simply a sense of comradeship or camaraderie, but the knowledge that we have been given new birth. New birth. We are children of the Heavenly Father and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. When I say I have brotherly concern for you, I mean it. You're my brother. I was born again through Jesus Christ. You were born again through Jesus Christ. We're united to Him. We have the same Father. That makes us brothers. It's not just an affectionate, worldly term. I mean it. Brother, sister. We are children of the Heavenly Father. And so, we don't stop there. We've been loved by God, right? So, we must love our fellow believers. Hebrews 2.11 tells us, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Catch this. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, you, brothers. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you brothers. Are you ashamed to call each other brother, sister, are you ashamed to call him brother? All of you, all of you have brotherly love is the command. How do we do that? We have the same father. How do we be of united mind? Well, I can love you as my brother or sister because you are, because we have the same father, because you've been joined together and are co-heirs with me and Jesus Christ. But if I get in the way and then all of that will fall apart. But if I live in the spirit of like mind, sympathetically, I will love you with brotherly love. And you're not a stranger to me. You are my flesh and blood. Number four. Next, all of you have a tender heart. All of you have a tender heart. Be tender-hearted. This is not simply a word about conduct, but... <laughs> It's, a, it's about your insides, all right? It's about your insides, literally your innards, your belly. The, the literal translation of the Greek here means feel generous in your belly, right? The Greeks associated inner organs with courage, right? So we would say, you have some guts, man. Pull together, some courage, right? But in the Bible, these inner organs are linked with mercy and concern. You might have heard the bowels of mercy, I like Piper's definition of this one as well. He says, be well disposed, caring, compassionate to each other in your deeps. <laughs> in your deeps. How's that for a Sunday morning gathering, right? You, come, you walk in on Sunday, so good to see you. I, I just feel it in my deeps, right? You can take that and find out who's listening to the podcast as you welcome them and, and look at their face. Um, yeah, I, I mean, care well-disposed, compassionate in your deeps, like deep inside. Now, Matt and I get accused often of, well, a lot, uh, but one thing uh, in particular is a dismissal of feelings. That's why I didn't include Greg on this particular one. Uh, Greg is a feeling pastor. Matt and I are not necessarily as feeling, um, but we get accused of dismissing feelings. You don't care how I feel. You're not worried about how I feel. I want to talk about how I feel and all you want to talk about is this, all right? That's not true, all right? We do not dismiss feelings, but these are the feelings that we're looking for. These are the feelings that we're looking for, this, this idea of being well-disposed and caring, compassionate in your deeps. <laughs> do you feel it on the innards? We're talking about feeling here when we're talking about compassion, 
Now, it's the, exactly the opposite of a hypocrisy that acts tender, but still feels malice. That's typically what we encounter. We get someone that says, oh, I feel hurt, or, or I'm upset about this. You don't care about how I feel. I don't care about how you feel because all you want to do is tell me how you're right. I don't care how you feel because all you actually feel right now is anger. What I care about is truth. What I care about is, is restoration. What I care about is righteousness. What I care about is pursuing holiness. And all of those have feelings. It's called joy. It's called joy. When you encounter various trials, do so in joy. When you encounter suffering, do so in joy. Our circumstances don't allow us to feel what we want to feel. Our circumstances give us feelings to show us what's wrong with our hearts that should lead to joy. And so when you come to your pastors, we're concerned about moving your heart to joy. Then you can actually work through your circumstances. Then you can work through your trials. Then you can work through your sufferings. But you can't do it apart from joy in Jesus. It blows people's mind when they come to us and they say, but I feel hurt. And I respond, but should you? Should you feel hurt? They say, but I just wanted to help them. And I say, why? And these are the questions that we don't think about. These are the assumptions that we make that anytime I feel hurt, it's justified. At any time that I feel like I even wanted to help, I'm being a helper, a servant, right? Why did you want to help? Because at the end of the day, what I really want is to show that my plan's best, that I'm right, that I'm most glorious, that I can bring the most grace to your life. There's a situation among the six elders uh, that arose recently, and I wanted to be the one to bring goodness I, I wanted to bring the most good. As you know, I'm a comfort idol, and so God is good. I, why do I have to look elsewhere? I care about bringing goodness to a situation. So I had this, the, the goodest thing to say. And in our meeting, Stephen got to speak first, and he blew it out of the water. He's a power idol, and he doesn't really care about goodness, right? Not at all. Um, <laughs> Stephen, just incredible words, incredible words. And I'm like, man, I'm out. I, I can't do it better. God brought what needed to happen there. So I could help and I could try to one-up them, but I'm not trying to help. I'm trying to be the goodest. That's not help. When we talk about our feelings, the idea of feelings is to show what's wrong in our heart and the call for us is in our deeps to be compassionate. Our feelings should be about being well-disposed and caring. Oftentimes when we're hurt, it's not hurt, it's pride. You don't have a right to feel hurt. You're not the most glorious. You're not the greatest. You see, when people revile you because of your witness, they're reviling Christ, not you. So the scriptures speak a lot to feelings, just not the way that we want to feel. <laughs> the scripture uses words of compassion when it talks about feelings towards others. It uses words like joy when we experience difficulties and trials. The Gospels speak of compassion of Jesus for the crowds and for the sick. Jesus describes the compassion of his father in the parable of the prodigal son, being ready and willing to forgive. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus binds that compassion upon his disciples. 
He contrasts the tender care of the Samaritan with the indifference of the priest and the Levite. The Samaritan had compassion on the critically wounded man. The priest and Levite would surely be considered neighbors to the victim. The Samaritan, though, would not. And no one would hold a Samaritan accountable to nurse a wounded Jew at his own expense. But the Samaritan showed a love that could not be demanded, the love of mercy. He made himself a neighbor and the love of compassion. You are neighbors one to another in this body. But to the world out there, we have to make ourselves neighbors. You see, the burden of the Lord's teaching is the burden of Peter's letter. We've received the free compassion of Christ's grace. Jesus himself bore our sins. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. We see that in chapter 2, verse 24, and then coming up in a, uh, next week in verse 18 of chapter 3. We have received, you've already got, the blessings and future grace that you want are already yours in this sense, and that we receive the free compassion of Christ's grace. He bore our sins, and he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, the substitutionary aspect we talked about a few weeks ago. And so the love that he now requires of us as his people and his body that he bought with his own blood is not a self-righteous legalistic love working to score points for heaven. Rather, as those who have been made heirs of the blessing of life that we'll see in, in the next verse, we must model our love on the love of God in Christ. God's compassion demands love like this, love that cannot be demanded, <laughs> the love of free grace. Only God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit can move us to show his compassion. See, I struggled with compassion because I was not living in joy. Shortly after my experience of, of, of really working through the idea of Christian joy five, six years ago now, after that, found joy, but struggling still with compassion because I hadn't rooted it in that joy. Compassion was costly. It still is costly, but I was paying from the wrong account, as it were. Compassion is a free grace. It's costly to Jesus, not to me. And so I'm concerned that your feelings, my feelings, when we talk about feelings, I'm concerned that they move me to be a neighbor, that they move me to sacrifice, that it moves me to free grace, and that it stirs in my bowels affections for Jesus Christ. Matt is, at least in the office, often just says, just love Jesus. I just want you to love Jesus. In the frustrations that we have in, in shepherding and in care, in the, in the spurring you guys on to righteousness, he often just says, just love Jesus. And I was reading an article this past week. I was talking about some of the difficulties with, um, with, with pastoral ministry. And at the end of the day, what often happens is that in conflict that we experience, um, either as leaders or even in, in each of our individual lives, is that the conflict comes from people just not loving Jesus. And so there's a very real sense in that we should expect it. What else do you expect from people who don't love Jesus, whether lost or believers who are living in the flesh and aren't loving Jesus? What else should we expect? 
And this, this article then said this. It said, we must remember that what the sheep really need is a heart so full of love for Jesus that it spills out in ways that look and sound like Jesus. And I'm like, Matt says that. He says that all the time. Just love Jesus. It's that simple. This is what helps move me now particularly to compassion. When I see sin, failure, hurt, anger, frustration, sadness, dismay, I now usually see a person. This person needs a heart full of love for Jesus. See, when I'm, when I'm attacked by someone, my flesh moves first quickly to vindication, to defense, to, to, to revenge, all of these things. And the Spirit takes over very quickly by God's grace, generally, <laughs> to help move me to compassion. Now, I can remove myself from the equation and see that this person's doing this because they don't love Jesus. And I can usually help. That's my call, to help, to bring compassion. So they don't look like Jesus now because their love for him is waning, particularly when we're talking believer to believer in the body. We're all called the one body. In the church, we call each other regularly, daily, back to love for Jesus. When someone hurts your feelings, I don't need to hear about it. They don't love Jesus. Call them back to Jesus. When we're not united in virtue, call them back to Jesus. Call yourself back to Jesus. It is love for him that moves the feelings, that affections those deeps. And so are you moved to be a neighbor, moved to sacrifice, moved to free grace? Are you stirred in your bowels, in your deeps, affections for Jesus Christ? As Peter tells us, all of you, have it. Number five, all of you have a humble mind or be humble in spirit. Again, it's not just that we are to act the role of a servant, but that inside with all authenticity, we are to have a lowly spirit. We feel that we're utterly dependent on God for life and breath and intelligence and emotional stability and faith and safety and the use of our senses. And we feel utterly fragile and vulnerable in ourselves. And on top of that, we feel sinful and unworthy as we look at ourselves apart from the free grace of God. And this grace should, in light of all of that, make us wonderstruck that we are loved, not pushy and self-assertive. The humility that comes from being utterly dependent on God, but having all free grace provided should make us wonderstruck. And so for this grace too, Christ is certainly our model. He called disciples to him as one who is gentle and humble in heart. And the word that we're looking at here is, is compound, like the first in this list, and the two are in very close harmony together. Because, listen, if there's to be like-mindedness, there must also be lowly-mindedness. There's not room on the pedestal for two. We all gather together lowly-minded, like-mindedly. And so Peter's going to return to this theme, particularly urging Christians to clothe yourselves 
with humility, to serve one another in chapter 5, verse 5. Now clearly, Peter had learned humility the hard way, right? His pride had been crushed by the denials that shamed his boasting. But Peter sees humility as deeper than the leveling of pride. It's not simply bringing pride down, so it's smaller pride. It's not that. He finds it in the free humiliation of his Lord. Not only, right, in taking the towel and the basin and washing their feet, but in taking the cross. I think for you power idols particularly, your greatest nightmare is humiliation. You fear it all the time. In one confrontation we had this past week, I trafficked in humiliation with them because pride was crushing. And so with power idols, should they be not sensitive to the Spirit, humiliation is the rebuke that comes. You don't have to prove yourself. It's not humiliating to not be able to prove yourself. Humiliation does not have to be your greatest nightmare. God is what? Gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. This lowliness, this humiliation that Christ modeled, calls us to humble service. Listen, Christian humility is going to be mocked. It's going to be mocked to the end of time as Jesus' humiliation on the cross was mocked. But it will be honored by God in the triumph of the returning Lord. And even before that day, the power of Christian humility bears witness. And so how are you feeling wonderstruck that you are loved? When you dress each day, is it a reminder to put on humility as well? Now we get to the end of this list and we can imagine saying, but Peter, that's not the way that I am. (laughs) That's not the way I am. You're asking me to be something that I'm not. I can't do that. I think he would answer, if you are born again, brother, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you, compassion, if you are the children of God by adoption, like-minded, If Christ is now your treasure, sympathy, and God is your hope, humility, then the seed of all these traits is in you. And they will flourish if you go on trusting in God's future grace. We're called to one body. That's what we are and what we are to do But it comes about in a very specific and unique way. What I want you to see next is that blessing is our calling. Blessing is our calling. As one body, we are to be those things and we are to do blessing. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. But they are free for blessing 
because they know God's goodness. In those situations that I described earlier where we're being attacked and my flesh wants to take over, I can be free from having the flesh take over and being vindictive because I trust God's justice. I've seen over the past 12 and a half years God's vindication all over the place in our ministry. I've been disciplined as well, but in our ministry in general, I see God's vindication. So I can be free from that because I know God is just. But there's more. I'm also free. Free for blessing because I know God's goodness. The blessing with which a Christian meets insults cannot, of course, pronounce God's favor on those who blaspheme his name. There's a balance in this. When I rebuke, I'm not being vindictive. I, I can be, but I'm, that's not the goal. That's not what's happening. When I rebuke, when I re- reproof, when I uh, bring uh, truth to those that are reproaching, I'm not being vindictive. That's called grace. It's grace when other people do it to me. When I'm rebuked, when I'm reproved, that's grace to me. If I do it for my own name, I'm being vindictive. If I do it to love and have compassion for them, I'm doing it as grace. But listen, when we, when we talk about not returning evil for evil, but, but bringing <laughs> kindness to them, love to them, blessing to them, we're not approving what they do. That's not the point. The point is that we are free because of God's goodness to bring blessing. But in that balance, we still rebuke. So I'm not pronouncing God's favor on those who blaspheme his name. I'm not pronouncing favor by bringing blessing. In the psalm that Peter quotes, we read that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm bringing blessing, grace, to those who are against the face of the Lord. They're doing evil. Our blessing of evildoers and persecutors must take the form of a prayer that seeks, listen, their salvation and good. Their salvation and good. But this does not reduce blessing to mere mere well-wishing words. This is a high call. To stand in the face of accusers, to stand in the face of those that would insult you, to stand in the face of those people and be compassionate because they don't love Jesus. That's what's going on. To stand in their face as, as Stephen did as they stoned him in the face and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. With a young Pharisee named Saul, who was one of those for whom Stephen prayed, the Lord who stood at the right hand of God received Stephen and answered his prayer. Now, for us, particularly as a church, I want to remind us that blessing is a rhythm for us. It's something that we are called to do regularly, daily. We talk about how our identities are who we are and our rhythms are what we do. Blessing is one of our rhythms. Some have been confused as to how this works, particularly with your identity as a servant. So I want to remind you that your identity is as a servant. You can be a servant as you communicate, work, eat, and recreate your other rhythms. And in this case, you can be a servant that blesses. Servanthood is your posture. That's who you are. Blessing is your action. So I want to read from our material just to remind us of what this blessing looks like. What have we as a church agreed to, to do? 
when we talk about this verse, verse 9, of blessing others. So bless, we intentionally bless others through words, gifts, and actions. God desires that all people would be blessed through Jesus. And now as his body, we believe we live out this mission as we bless others. We intentionally seek God's direction for he, who he would have us tangibly bless each week. We all have talents, resources, and time. Some of us believe we've earned these things and therefore are entitled to them. This leads to greed and selfishness stemming from pride and causes fights, quarrels, divisions, and anxiety. That is the inverse of this passage that we've just worked through. When we believe that all we have is from God's gracious hand, gifts given not due to our own work, then we selflessly share what we have for the sake of others, leading us to acts of service, sacrifice, and love. Because we've been blessed by God, just like Abraham, we've been blessed. We have received unmerited favor and provision. This is not because of anything that we've done, but because of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. So we're blessed by God to be a blessing. We're not blessed just for our own good. We've been given what we have so that others might also receive. So we must regularly take account of what has been given to us and realize that it is not ours, but God's to steward. Then, in light of the gospel that reminds us that he became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich, we are freed up to pour out our lives and things so that others might be blessed and taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed by God to be a blessing to each other. When we believe the gospel and realize that I did not gain what I have, nor do I really even own what I have, and then see that our Father in heaven provides for his children through sharing what we, what we have, and we can then give them to each other. Then I finally come to see that I don't really own anything, and yet at the same time I have more than I ever dreamed. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, houses, cars, clothes, food, etc. All that we have is His, and all that is His is ours. We're blessed by God to be a blessing to each other and to our culture and community. God's intent in blessing His people has always been so that those who don't know Him and His grace might see Him at work in and through us and come to Him through our lives. We must direct our eyes outward and begin to believe that He has given us everything for life and godliness. He has resourced us with what we need to do the gospel work of blessing others who don't know Him yet. And so as a church renovation that's how we interpret this passage, this very passage that we dealt with today. And it is our calling. We are called to blessing. Verse 9. Peter, though, has taken um, several opportunities to express his Jewishness in this, in this, uh, this book. Here comes another one. And it, it's really helpful, I think, to, to all of us because... Despite all of the self-sacrifice, free grace, everything that I've been talking about, there's still this sense in me, I would imagine in you, what's in it for me? <laughs> Why? Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We talked about this idea of suffering. There has to be a really strong why. We cannot simply just die to self for no reason. We just can't. 
God has given us a very strong why. We saw it before when we talked about suffering. We see it now when we talk about this, this life together. This humility and life together. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. For Peter, who walked with Jesus, his great encouragement is the Old Testament. His great encouragement is Psalms. And this passage is his why. Verses 10 through 12 teach us that one proper and good motive for righteous living, for living those five things that we talked about, is the knowledge that this conduct is going to bring blessings from God in this life. That's okay. For you comfort idols, God's good. You don't have to look elsewhere. He's good. This is good. You desire to love life and see good days? Sign me up. That's even in light of the suffering that he's going to talk about in the very next verse. That's still the good life. We don't have to look elsewhere. What's my why? It's the best that it gets. I get God. I get God. You talk about having trouble having the affections for Christ in your deeps. It's because you don't see that you get God. When I struggle in my flesh and in my circumstances and from, from finances to emotions to relationships to parenting to marriage and I'm struggling and lost in that, it's because I forget that I've got God. We get Him. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. This is quite similar to the appeal that he just gave prior to husbands, that our prayers would not be hindered. You, you want to see how important prayer is to Peter? It matters enough to threaten husbands with it. And it matters enough to give the why on why we should live this way. He hears our prayers. And this appeals to the same call that Pastor Matt just gave us. I'm talking about the husbands, that our communion with the Lord would flourish. He said to, to cherish the relationship that you have with the Lord so much that it overflows into your relationship with your wife. And I would add with the body. Because the warning stands, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You get God. The last thing to see today is that this is the evidence of the new birth. This is the evidence of the new birth. This is from John Piper. But, and here many go astray, so take heed that the blessing will be graciously inherited by those who are born of God. The evidence of being born of God is a lively, vital hope in that future 
blessing. The evidence of being born again is faith and future grace. And the essence of this faith is that we embrace that promise of blessing as our treasure and bank our hope on it, find our satisfaction in it. And the evidence that this is happening in your life is that your life becomes a foretaste of the promised future that you cherish. If you cherish the future of God's promised grace above all things, then your life becomes a foretaste of future grace now. You will not return evil for evil because the greatest hope of your life is that God will not return evil for evil to you. You will bless those who insult you because the future blessing that you embrace as your treasure and bank on as your hope and find satisfaction is precisely that kind of gracious blessing. The evidence that we are born of God and will inherit a future blessing is that our lives become a foretaste of the future that we cherish. Encourage us with a warning. (laughs) The inverse is true. If we cherish our own kingdom, then we will get that foretaste of death now. We'll get that foretaste of death now, but if we cherish God and his kingdom, we get the foretaste of that future now. It leads to life. As we take communion today, I want to encourage us that this is on display now. That the body is broken on our behalf now. That the blood is poured out on our behalf now. That Christ is humiliated on the cross on our behalf now. That as we look forward to this future grace of sharing the cup at the table, sharing the, the meal at the table, we do that here and now. We talk about having sympathy and entering into concerns for each other. We do that now. You can't take communion in a worthy manner unless you have nothing against your brothers and sisters. You leave your gift at the altar. You go and reconcile and then come and celebrate in reconciliation together. We get the compassion. We get the unitedness of mind. We get the humility as we all come and share from the same loaf and from the same cup. This picture that we see of communion is something that we live out in covenant community. It's something that we live out daily in our hope of future grace. It's not just gluten-free bread and grape juice. It's an opportunity to bring our minds back to the fact that we work together, one body over a broken body, that will one day, that was resurrected and will one day together be resurrected. And so my call to you today as we take communion together as a body would be to encourage you in this. This is a picture of future grace. Something that you hope for in the future that you get to taste in five minutes. You get to taste it now. It's something that we look forward to. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your sacrifice, for your (laughs) being made a neighbor of us, putting on flesh like us. Father, that you're not ashamed to call us brothers. Father, that you share your inheritance with us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Let our affections be stirred for him in this moment as we are wonderstruck at how he cares for us. As we are wonderstruck over the, the sacrifice made on our behalf. As we are wonderstruck over the love displayed on the cross. Father, this love and kindness that he displayed for us is not 
not, not meant for no reason. It is meant to bring us to repentance. And so, Father, let us come and take communion together as one body, united in mind, sympathetic, with brotherly love and compassion and humbly. Because our Savior went and did that for us. Because our Savior made that way possible. Because our Savior bought us with His own blood. Father, as we look to the future and being united with another body, I pray, Father, that You would knit us together in Christ Jesus. That we would enter into the concerns and hurts of each other. Father, that when one of their body hurts, we all hurt. Because indeed, one day it will be the same body here on earth. Should you continue to move us this way, and Father, certainly in heaven, when we are brought together under Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.